My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Christine Bro and Doug Nesbitt. Far too often, the most basic kinds of work that enable us to live our lives and to do the many other things that we do are among the least recognized, the least respected, and the least rewarded. Perhaps the biggest example of this is the work that happens in our homes, which is mostly unpaid and is rarely seen as actual work, and also happens to fall disproportionately on women. But the same tendency appears in more public, waged work as well. In many cities, janitorial workers in large buildings workers whose labor is a baseline for so much else that happens in these cities, make minimum wage or only a tiny bit more and have to navigate truly lousy conditions. This work tends to be disproportionately borne by immigrants and people of color. Since the 1980s, an innovative sector-wide approach to organizing has been used in city after city across North America to allow janitors to win small but very real and meaningful gains. Ottawa is one of the more recent centers to see this sort of Justice for Janitors campaign. Though it's only a few years old, the majority of janitorial workers in the city are now union members, and they have a city-wide collective agreement. Yet the resistance from some employers remains fierce, and much work remains to be done to win the kinds of concrete gains that janitors in other cities have been able to win. Bro and Nesbitt are organizers with the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, and with the Justice for Janitors campaign. They talk with me about how the campaign has gone in Ottawa, about the current focal points of struggle, and about the crucial lessons that they've learned doing this work. I spoke with them by Skype from Ottawa. My name is Christine. I work with the Justice for Janitors campaign here in Ottawa. I actually was hired in Toronto last April of 2013, and then I was transferred to Ottawa because they needed another organizer here in August of 2013. And I'm Doug, and I got hired just this past April 2014 with the campaign, so I've only been on for two months as an organizer. J4J from Canada, and it was inspired by that movement that started in the U.S. It began in Toronto in 2007. The main reason was that there was an industry where basically workers were getting the most exploited, mainly immigrant workplaces, People who have, didn't really know their rights in many cases because of the language limitations. So it sort of sprang out from that. And the idea was we want to raise standards across the whole industry. So we started organizing and we're still working towards that. So for example, right now in Toronto, they're actually a little bit ahead of Ottawa because they had started earlier and they have been able to secure health and dental benefits in their last round of negotiations. Here in Ottawa, it began in 2008, 2009, I believe was the first collective agreement that was signed. Right now, there's a collective agreement, it's a citywide collective agreement that has over 15 of the major cleaning contractors in Ottawa. And it's not the best collective agreement, but it's the first step. And next year in 2015, we're, we're set for 
renegotiating that citywide agreement, and the goal is to win those benefits here in Ottawa and higher wages. Give me a sense of how the industry works, how the jobs are organized, what conditions are like. Usually the property owners will hire a property manager to manage the buildings that they're in, and then the property managers will have bids for cleaning companies. And in the private sector with commercial buildings, there'll be invite-only bids, so maybe five or six companies will put in a bid, and usually is the case that the lowest bidder wins the contract. In Ottawa, it's pretty unique for Canada because the federal government is the largest property owner, and they're mandated to have an open bidding process. So in Ottawa, it gives rise to many, many mid-level and third-tier cleaning companies. So it's because of the public bids, there are more companies in Ottawa as opposed to, say, Halifax, where one company would dominate something like 80% of the market. Here you have several dozen companies, all with small slices of the market. And what it actually does is make it more difficult for cleaners to organize and more difficult for organizers like ourselves to help them do that organizing. And as a result, Ottawa has very, very like bare minimum standards. It's basically minimum wage and no benefits. And that leads to really, really poor working conditions, even in the most prominent federal public buildings people can think of, like all the different work sites that federal ministries and crown corporations, like the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, all the different ministries operate in. So you'll have federal public service workers who have some of the strongest collective agreements and best working conditions in Canada will be working alongside people who are making minimum wage with no benefits and these small cleaning contractors whose supervisors and managers regularly take advantage of the cleaners. There's an interesting history in Ottawa as well because of the federal public buildings. The cleaners used to be all members of the federal public service unions. So the PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, for example, those used to be who the cleaners worked for, but under Mulroney and through the 90s under the Liberals, those jobs were contracted out, privatized, essentially. So you'll have people who work at desk jobs who are unionized with the PSAC, who are covered under federal labor law because they're federal workers, who will be working alongside privatized cleaners who operate under Ontario labor law because they're no longer considered federal workers. So at some point, there had to have been a collapse in wages and benefits and working conditions. This was around the 80s it started. That, that's what I was told. Before J4J, I, I suppose, came to Toronto and Ottawa, before we started organizing the janitors across the city, the majority of them were making minimum wage. And in many cases, we found, I mean, at least I heard, and I found a couple examples here in Ottawa, where there's a lot of subcontracting schemes. So a lot of cleaners, for example, they'd be making, say, 12 or $11 an hour at that time, which they thought, oh, that's great, it's above. At that time, was a 10.25 minimum wage and even lower. However, the deductions wouldn't be on their paycheck. So after doing the, the deductions every year and their taxes, they end up making less than minimum wage. 
So you have a lot of that in the industry still today that we're trying to fight and even trying to find and canvas these buildings and trying to find workers that want to speak out about these conditions. So for the most part, most of them were just making minimum wage and had really no benefits, no grievance procedure, really no voice at all in the workplace. And you would have lots of problems that we've been hearing about with health and safety. So being asked to do things that are very unsafe and not knowing that they have the right to refuse unsafe work. I was just speaking to a worker a couple of days ago, and he was explaining to me how the company he worked for, he had to change a light bulb that had a 40-foot drop beneath it, and the supervisor wanted him to lean a ladder up against a ledge to reach over and change the light bulb, The worker who knew his rights refused to do it and later found out that the company had no idea how to properly change the light bulb and all he really had to do was go onto the floor above and he could change the ceiling bulb from the floor above it. So it's those sorts of things where management incompetence and just not caring about the safety of the workers becomes a problem. That sort of thing I'm sure happens pretty regularly. And then there's also health and safety issues with being asked to do too much work, so being overworked, people getting fired for no good reason, especially if they might have a personal conflict with the supervisor or they don't get along with the supervisor. There's also favoritism and nepotism that go along in the workplace because the workers aren't organized, so... Those issues mean that workplaces can have low morale or lots of infighting between the people who work there. Also, people's hours can be really uneven and unreliable. I think there are also issues with people being shipped around to different workplaces, so they don't have a standard workplace with a standard schedule. They're being moved around, and that can be very difficult on people. And... With the low wages in a city like Ottawa where transit fares are really expensive, including bus passes, getting around the city is a huge drain on resources. People's pocketbooks are really burned through when they have to pay so much for transit. And Ottawa also has relatively high rents. So we even have a lot of people who live across in Gatineau where the rents are cheaper and they have some better protections in terms of uh, rent controls. Well, there's also the issue of there's a lot of workers who are working more than the 44 hours a week. And this issue even exists with unionized sites, but more with non-union sites where they're not getting paid that overtime pay. And because many of them are, like Doug was saying, moving to different sites. So a lot of these cleaners, because the standards are so low, they have to take not only a day shift, but that four-hour evening shift from 5 to 9 or 5 to 10 p.m. And probably one of the grossest things that we see fairly regularly is the companies will specifically target different ethnic and national groups based on what those countries are like and what the culture is like. So they'll hire people who come from a country where there's a lot of fear about labor organizing or any sort of political organizing or any sort of attempt to improve conditions. And the companies will take advantage of those people and be able to exploit them much more. They also do similar things where they will hire workforces deliberately divided between one group and another and play those people off against each other. And also that facilitates things like favoritism and 
the workers are more pitted against one another instead of identifying the company as the key source of the problem. Tell me about the logistics of organizing. What have you done to try and build the union in this sector? Right now in Ottawa, we have the majority of cleaning contractors unionized. But for those that aren't, what we first do is we canvass the non-union sites. So we spend a lot of time you know, trying to see how many workers are at that site, when their shifts are, if there's more than one shift at that specific site. So that's the first step before we even have any conversation with the worker. And then when we're sure of where the security cameras are, where the security desk is, then that's when we start to have conversations with workers and, you know, try to get their contact information. And we only have around one or two minutes because in most cases they're rushing to get to work. So what we try and do is give them a flyer and have a follow-up meeting. So the key thing is sort of getting that contact information from them so we could have follow-ups. And then from there, as we start to get some support within that particular work site, we start to organize meetings with more than one worker, sort of group meetings to show the workers that you're not alone, that we're going to we're gonna win this campaign, but you have to stay together. And from there, I mean, when we reach that majority, we usually never file an application unless we have 65% of support at a certain site, just to be sure that they would win the vote and form a union. And after that, that's it. There's the vote that takes place one week after we put the application with the Ministry of Labor. And from there, it's just uh, the negotiations of the collective agreement. We're also at the point where, we, because we have a majority, I believe, of the cleaners in the union now within Ottawa, a lot of them work second jobs or third jobs, and they'll be in the union at one site, but they'll also work at a non-union site. And that's one of the reasons why the campaign around 2008-9 unrolled fairly quickly, where workers at one site will work at two or three others. So there'll be a union vote at three different sites. We still have those connections now for organizing the non-union sites. Workers who are in favor of the union uh, will inform us about different sites that are non-union and will also be able to inform us about the grievances and the issues that are at those sites. What's the main focus of your attention at this point? Is it continuing organizing new sites or is it struggles in already organized workplaces or where's your energy going these days? We have 15 companies in the citywide agreement, but there's roughly an equal number who aren't in the agreement except they're smaller companies. We're in a precarious situation where leading up to next year, the summer of 2015, when the citywide contract expires, where a push by one of the non-union or even one of the unionized companies to destabilize the union or try to undermine the union at a particular site can do a lot of damage leading up to the contract negotiations. And we've actually been struggling against one company called Everpros. They won a contract to clean a work site at 700 Montreal Road, which is where the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation is located. What Everpros did was subcontract to a third party. And because the workplace was unionized and they did the subcontracting, they were essentially able to remove the union from that work site. And the way they did it was by offering the workers work at another site or essentially nothing. So they dispersed that workforce. And as a result, that site is no longer a unionized site. 
Our union is currently engaged in a legal battle. We filed an unfair labor practice against that. And then Everprose is also waging a fight at another site, which is a, another federal government building complex called Tunney's Pasture, where there are several thousand federal public service workers. And this particular site, for reasons I can't really get into because I don't fully understand, there's a separate collective agreement. Mm-hmm. So there's a citywide collective agreement, and this site has its own specific collective agreement. And we just went into bargaining a few months ago, and first bargaining session broke down in 15 minutes because Everpros wanted a five-year agreement with a five-year wage freeze and no benefits. So Everpros is proving to be a company that doesn't want to be part of the citywide agreement and doesn't want to have the union have any effectiveness or really exist at their sites that they have contracts with, even though they're federal government buildings. And that's an example, a really good example of how one company, if they succeed in pushing the union back, can empower the other companies to do the same thing, and then that puts into question the entire citywide agreement. And so we're waging a campaign against Everpros, and there's a website up called ioneverpros.org. The company's name is spelled E-V-R-I-P-O-S. That campaign has many components to it, so we have to organize the workers internally, the people who are in the union. We have to organize community and other labor union support, so all the public service workers, for example, in those buildings... We're working with them and getting them out to our demonstrations and getting them to support us. Because it's in federal public buildings, we're approaching politicians, both the NDP and the Liberal Party, to try and get opposition support. We're trying to generate media attention. We've been organizing workers and community allies to get that leverage. At the same time, we've recently had a meeting with Everpros with a mediator. So that process is at least kind of back on track. But with the leverage campaign, we've also, we got about 550 signatures on a petition, many of them cleaners themselves and workers in federal government buildings. And we had a rally at the Public Works and Government Services Canada building, where Minister Diane Finley, she governs that department. And we took that petition to Diane Finley to pressure the federal government to resolve these issues. Of course, Diane Finley didn't meet us. and In fact, she didn't even send down a representative. But that's just a starting point for that sort of campaign. It's proven to work in the past, especially with the federal government, where from the federal government scale, little tiny issues like not being able to throw 50 cents a year pay increases become such a headache and generate enough media attention that the federal government comes down on the property manager and the contractor and says, sort this stuff out, we don't need this sort of headache. And that's the type of campaign that we're trying to build. You've mentioned a couple of key tactics that management uses One of them is playing up the fear that many of the workers might have. Another is playing on ethnic and linguistic divisions that might exist between workers. What options do you have to counter those kinds of tactics? 
Well, what we usually do is when we get workers to sign cards, because a lot of them have that fear, and it's a very valid fear, but we try and encourage them, look, sign this card, and also we want to take your picture. In many cases, we get them to take a picture, and it's sort of their protection, because if the company afterwards tries to fire them, we can go to the labor board and prove these workers were fired because they were supportive of the union, because they were leaders in the campaign. So in order to counter that strategy, we tell workers you shouldn't be scared. If you guys stick together, the company can't get to you. We want to empower them, right? We want them to feel, yeah, we're powerful and we're together because they have the power. They just they have to know they have the power and use that power. With the linguistic barriers, which is more than just linguistic because it's cultural too, if we're able to recruit stewards internally within our union who come from, say, Burma or come from Vietnam or come from Ethiopia, Somalia, Cameroon, and so on, we can work with them and bring them to meetings and bring them to house visits and they can participate in actually building the union. So that building up grassroots leaders and going through those experiences together with our members on the inside in the external campaigns can help us accomplish the external work that we need. At the same time, it creates leaders in the local themselves and makes sure that the union has good activists on the ground and can develop the type of local grassroots leadership that the union needs to be more powerful and be more democratic, too. Another strategy we use to counter the company divide and rule tactics is we do a lot of house visits when we are organizing a campaign because generally workers are much more open to talking about their particular problems. So what we do is we'll try to get their contact information and go and talk to them even for an hour, an hour and a half at their house so we know exactly what their issues are and they feel comfortable. And as the campaign continues, we generally like to have all the workers who are supportive come together and see that they're not alone in this process. That usually encourages workers and they realize, oh, yeah, we are the majority. We can win this fight so easily if we do stick together. Recently, we had a stewards training on a recent weekend where we had a couple of dozen workers who came and are interested in learning about labor law and how the industry works and they want to become a steward and learn how to file grievances and those sorts of things. If you actually explain to them how the campaigns work and include them in it, they have a much deeper relationship and a better understanding of what is going on. So because we're not actually cleaners, as organizers, we have much stronger and, I think, trustful relationship with those workers. I know for me, at least, like, we don't want to use workers. We don't want them to just be pawns. We need them to be active in their union and understand how the industry works, understand how the union works and set priorities for the union and set priorities for bargaining. So that means actually directly involving them in discussions about how things are operating. And when you get in those discussions as an organizer, you learn so much about how the industry works. They are the people who really know what's going on at their work sites, and that's the sort of information that they can translate to us and that we are able to use to better organize the rest of the industry, which, of course, directly benefits them. Are there any things that the two of you have learned from doing this organizing in this campaign that you think 
might be important lessons for the larger labor movement? One thing I learned to add on to what Doug was saying is really to allow workers to be part of the decision-making process. That's so important to have that democratic structure because it's lacking a lot in the labor movement in Canada. It's usually this one person who's making decisions on how to organize and it should be the workers making those decisions or at least included in the process. So that's an ongoing struggle with all unions, I think, in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, too, as an organizer, because I've only been doing it for two months now, and my experience doing political organizing was on a campus where you can get large numbers to protests or relatively large numbers, and you know, it can be very political and active without any repercussions. In the workplace, it means being very meticulous and strategic about what you're doing. So you do have to think two and three and four steps ahead of what you're actually trying to accomplish. So if you're organizing a protest, you're not doing it for the sake of having a protest. You have a longer-term goal. And you're also thinking about achieving your goals not through one form of action. So you're not just thinking about a protest. You're also thinking about how the industry works and how we can disrupt companies, ruin their reputations. Every approach has its own limitations. The same with dealing with politicians. Also developing alliances with community leaders and other unions. And I think also too with this job at data entry and having <laughs> long detailed lists of contacts Christine did a two-and-a-half-month campaign of internal organizing. We got 250 people contact information that included their shift, where they work, the company they work for. 250 interested in being stewards. Interested in being stewards. And then you actually have to go through and make all those phone calls and eventually try to get a conversation with them and track how well those conversations went. And then when it's all done reviewing the information of what worked and what didn't. You have to be very meticulous about it. So that sort of attention to detail and just not being afraid of doing the boring work. You just have to do it. It's so important developing those relationships with workers and building that trust. If you forget to follow up with a worker, it's, it's the most horrible thing, I think. If you tell them you're going to call them, you have to call them. It's, it's those sort of things that it's so important, right? And a lot of people will just turn off their phones at 5 p.m., you know, the 9 to 5. But no, as organizers, I know I have my phone on all yeah. the time. So if a worker has to call me at 10 p.m., then that's, I'm going to have to answer the phone. So it's really important to develop those relationships and, and give every person importance, no matter what their problem is. You have been listening to my interview with organizers Christine Bro and Doug Nesbitt of the Justice for Janitors campaign in Ottawa. To learn more about the campaign in that city and in other Canadian cities, go to justiceforjanitors.ca. That's justiceforjanitors.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.
Tschüss.